0: A Bit Lit, celebrating creativity and research of all kinds. Hello and welcome to this A Bit Lit session on Kazuo Ishiguro and his latest novel, Clara and the Sun. My name's Dominic Dean. I work on contemporary British fiction and I'm based at the University of Sussex here in Brighton. I've been interested in Ishiguro's work uh, for some time. I've published on Ishiguro's novels in peer-reviewed journals and Ishiguro forms a major focus of my forthcoming book, on violence against children in contemporary British fiction. And I'm joined today uh, to have a chat about Ishiguru, Clara and the Sun uh, by two distinguished colleagues. And we have here Amelia DeFalco from the University of Leeds and Eugene Teo from the University of Bournemouth. And Amelia, can I ask you to introduce yourself first?
1: Of course. So yes, my name is Amelia DeFalco. I'm Associate Professor of Medical Humanities in the School of English at University of Leeds, as you mentioned. And um, my work um, primarily concerns um, the depictions, uh, studying the depictions of uh, in literature and film, depictions of non-human care, very broadly speaking, which includes but is not limited to um, non-human animal uh, care and robot care. And this is part of a larger project that I'm doing on post-human care. And um, in fact, some of Ishiguro work, uh, Ishiguro's work is um, appears in the book that I'm working on called uh, Curious Kin, Fictions of Posthuman Care.
0: Thanks, Amelia. Well, fantastic to have you uh, with us today. And Eugene, would you like to introduce yourself?
2: Thanks, Dom, and thanks for inviting me. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm Eugen Teo. Um, I'm a senior lecturer at Bournemouth University um, in communications and English uh, in the Faculty of Media and Communication. My research originally with my PhD was about Kazuo Ishiguro and memory, um, which was my first um, monograph uh, in 2014 with Palgrave. And then my research has expanded um, by accident, into looking at uh, science fiction uh, nostalgia and robots, uh, robots, or robotic carers um, in science fiction. And recent research has looked at um, films like Robots and Frank, which Amelia has uh, done just before me, and also Big Hero 6 and the Humans TV series. Um, just be interested in kind of how the human robot interaction works with humans and with care work. Um, and also looking at uh, nostalgia and science fiction in general. Um, so I've recently co edited with a colleague from Brighton University, Iris uh, Mosesanis, um, a special issue of the journal Science Fiction Studies on nostalgia and science fiction um, and how kind of science fiction is always about looking back our human history, but in a way that is quite effective um, uh, in terms of the human condition. Uh, I think that's that's me.
0: Thanks, Jen. Well, um, great to have you both um, uh, participating in the discussion today. And before we get into uh, talk about some of the major themes and questions we might explore with Clara and the Sun, I'm just going to give a very quick introduction uh, to this novel. So Clara and the Sun is Ishiguro's eighth novel, and it was published in March of 2021. We're going to have a detailed discussion about the novel today, so I must uh, warn our audience that if you've not read it yet, there will be some spoilers involved. And Clara and the Sun uh, arrived uh, following a period when Ishiguro has been increasingly celebrated, and his position as a leading uh, contemporary writer in English has been increasingly secured and uh, well-recognized. In 2017, Ishiguro was awarded uh, the Nobel Prize in Literature, and shortly after he was given high honors by the governments of both uh, Japan, his country of birth, and the United Kingdom, the country in which he's lived since childhood. Mm -hmm. Ishiguro is both a very popular contemporary novelist and one who has uh, received and continues to receive significant uh, attention within the literary academy. And Ishiguro studies has now clearly emerged, I think, as a subfield uh, within contemporary literary studies. Ishiguro is well known for the combination of a subtle, understated style of narration alongside um, devastating revelations of ethical, political and emotional trauma. And his new novel is now different in that respect as well. Clara and the Sun is set in a future that is very near to ours, but which has made a few key advances in artificial intelligence and related biotechnologies. Within the future depicted by the novel, some children are genetically engineered. It's lifted in the novel's terminology for enhanced academic ability. And these children often have bought for them artificial friends, who provide companionship and personal assistance. One such artificial friend or AF is Clara, the novel's narrator and protagonist. The novel begins in an inner city store where Clara is uh, for sale alongside some other AFs, including some products that are more advanced than herself. From the store window, Clara watches, keenly observing the street outside and particularly looking towards the sun an entity of considerable importance to her because she is, in fact, a solar-powered android. And it's to the, uh, she attributes quasi-divine power to the sun, particularly after the sun appears to revive a dead homeless person on the street outside to life. Clara associates the sun with ecological health, and she has an abiding, very powerful hatred of all pollution a phenomenon she attributes particularly to a piece of machinery referred to as the Kooten's machine, which produces dark fumes that block out the sun's rays from reaching the store. Uh, Clara is eventually purchased by a 14-year-old girl called Josie, who is herself a lifted child who lives with her mother but suffers from a serious illness. Josie has a strong relationship with a neighbor child, it's called Rick, who has not been lifted, and who faces some discrimination as a result. Clara is determined to help Josie to get better and to protect her loving relationship with Rick. And as a result, Clara attempts to make a bargain with the son, praying to him to protect Josie's life, as he once did for the homeless person on the street, in return for which, Clara promises to destroy the polluting cuttings machine. Josie's mother, meanwhile, unexpectedly asks Clara to imitate Josie. And it's eventually revealed that she intends for Clara to integrate Josie's intelligence uh, if and when Josie dies, becoming a continuation of Josie inside a reconstructed body. And the novel is a multi-layered and, for Shiguro, typically subtle reflection on issues of the status of the human and the relationship between the human and ecology, technology, and ethics in a rapidly changing world and within the intimate uh, circumstances of lived experience. So that's a very quick um, summary introduction to Clara and the Sun. and uh, now we're going to have a chat and, and pick some of those uh, some of those issues and, and share our reflections on the novel in a bit more more detail. And uh, first off, um, I wonder um, Amelia and Eugene whether we could have a think about. Um, how far Clara and the Sun echoes, continues some of the themes and ideas and even the tone of Ishiguru's uh, previous work, um, and how it uh, diverges uh, from that previous work as well, and, and what also seems, seems new about it. Um, so, um, Eugene, would you like to uh, start, perhaps, with uh, some reflections on that?
2: I think there are similarities uh, as well as differences stylistically um I think a lot of Ishiguro fans and readers would be very familiar with um his first person narration how a lot of the characters begin the novels um like in an sort of floating world or, or in the remains of day where the 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 protagonist almost expects you to know them intimately um to, to almost be maybe even part of the industry that they're in and to draw you and, and Ishikura draws you into narrative that way it's almost a conspiratorial um aside you know uh, um you know uh, you know a little bit bit about my history I'm going to confide in you and that just is so tempting for a reader just to be taken in uh on uh, for for a very uh, uh interesting ride that way and you you almost have that sense with with the the beginnings of Clara and the Sun but I think what's different here is um and some people have said and I think uh, and I think Amelia you 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 get a sense of that as well that there is a bit of a distance with the Clara character which I think you also get with Kathy age and Never Let Me Go um and I suspect this is also deliberate on Ishiguro's part because these are non-human kind of storytellers, non-human narrators um, in these novels. So there is a similarity, and yet quite a bit of a difference. Um, and what I, from as you said, this is the first reading for for, for many of us, and and I de- I detected that maybe he he has done something quite different. We're no longer looking back. Because even with Never Let Me Go with narrators with um, four shortened lifespans, there's still a sense of Kathy H taking stock of her life and looking back on her past and trying to remember things and thinking about regrets and so on. You don't really get this here, you must have someone, a character who's a blank slate, um, who is eager to become an artificial friend and learn, and, you know, has, had only a really small span of time to pick up all these things about what humans do and what, how humans behave. But at the very end, uh, and again, you know, spoiler alert, she finds herself in the yard and she's quite happy to be on her own, we're talking about Clara here, um, to order her memories. And that hit me like a ton of bricks at the end, because I thought up to this point, Ishiguro is a bit different. He is no longer a character looking back on their past. And there you have a character who's absolutely really wanting to go back and reorder their memories like you, you would have a photo album, just kind of reorder all the photographs and just want some space and time to, to do that. And that struck me as a very human thing to want to do. Um, and, and, and so I guess for that reason, Just at the very end, suddenly Clara is, in terms of just narrators alone, already very much back in the territory of, you know, Ed Suko from Paleview Hills, Ono from and us of the floating worlds, you know, um, or even Kathy H from Never Let Me Go, wanting to make sense of the past properly, but with solitude. And that kind of struck me as as something that's kind of following in that lineage. So in typical Ishiguro fashion, you know, I got deceived at the start and, you know, came back to hit me at the end.
0: Thanks, Eugene. And Amelia, I wonder whether you have uh, similar uh, reactions in terms of the relationship to Ishiguro's uh, previous work, or did you think a little bit differently about that? Uh, Are there uh, points that that Eugene's made that you'd like to, to follow up on at all, just on this issue of the relationship between Clara and the son and Ishiguro's earlier work?
1: Well, I'm really glad to hear Eugen's take on it because I don't have the um, knowledge of Ishiguro's work that he does. So for me, um, um, you know, I can't really place it in his Uber, so to speak. But okay. I, I have been working on um, writing on Never Let Me Go, um, the, the the work that Eugen mentioned as well. So for me, that was the obvious, um, the obvious parallel. And I, I see a lot of similarities there um, as, as Eugene mentioned, certainly in the narration, because I think one of the things that's so compelling for me um, that we might want to talk about later is, is really this first person narration, non-human narrator, which, um, and the kind of work that that can do for a narration, uh, for a narrative and the way that that seduces a reader towards a kind of familiarity and can produce a potentially a kind of uncanny, um, uh, a a kind of uncanny uh, connection, right, between this kind of, that making the the non-human at once, that kind of, I'm thinking of like the conventional distinct um, definition of the uncanny as kind of familiar and strange at the same time. So you have this incredible intimacy and familiarity with uh, a completely unfamiliar, Entity or being or whatever we're going to choose to call uh, Clara, um, as as perhaps we'll talk about later. It sounds like um, robot is a bit verboten <laughs> as as a term, but um, I think there are these parallels between Clara and Kathy, and even in their names, um, you know, the fact that you have these Clara and Kathy both spelled with a K, and they seem they're, they're echoes of one another. And I read I read this novel as a kind of if almost a continuation of Never Let Me Go in many ways. Um, It explores many of the same ideas, but also to me very much in a similar style with this first person, um, naive, quasi non-human, though Kathy is certainly human biologically. She's not human in terms of her status within her culture and community, right? She's entirely an outsider and excluded from all of the, the rights and, and um, privileges that would go along with human status. So, and and you have that outsider um, observing, absorbing, as you said, right? Um, Eugene, just constantly observing, and so it prov- provides this really um, special insight for the reader, right? It, that you are at once a, a part of and excluded from, and much like the narrator, um, and special being. I, I think that word is in my mind, right? Because such an important word for this novel. And I think that's the thing that uh, also really seemed um, so powerful connecting the two novels. This, this preoccupation with specialness, uniqueness, individuality, um, even something, as the novel uses the word, like this idea of this almost ineffable something that qualifies one for human status and um, the degree to which non-human entities might be seen to have that something on the one hand and on the other the degree to which so- these non-human entities might in fact challenge that status and disrupt it to the point where it, it no longer has meaning or has any import right within within the culture so I see, I feel like this novel in many ways continues and in fact almost amplifies many of the questions that were so prominent in the in Never Let Me Go and, and poses them maybe in slightly different ways, but I feel like is is more urgent in in the way it poses them as well.
0: Thanks, Amelia. Yeah, I think those, those are really fascinating reflections that you've both given there. And that, that connection to Never Let Me Go, um, even though, of course, it's not the preceding uh, Ishiguro novel. And I want to maybe come back to any connections with the, the one that is immediately preceding at the very giant in a bit. But but yeah, I think that there are those very um, clear um very compelling um, connections between Clara and the Sun and *And Never Let Me Go. I mean, you've obviously both, uh, between you mentioned several of them now. I think as well, the fact of just how important euphemism is in both novels as well. Um, there's clearly a sort of almost a continued um world there and also in these relationships um that have to prove that they are kind of um truly loving uh, human effective relationships and that has to be sort of proved in order to access some kind of external um reward or set of rights um, and that of course is something that uh, uh, rick and Josie experience in car and the sun and it is quite a in quite direct continuity, it seems to me, with what Kathy and Tommy um, go through um, in Never Let Me Go. And of course, in in both situations, it's not uh, everything is not quite as they as they think, um, or doesn't turn out perhaps in entirely the way that they envisage. I was also interested in terms of Echo's uh, Tushiguru's previous work, going right back to. Um, the start of Ishiguru's career, and *A Pale View of Hills*, of course, is his first novel back in 1982, um, where you again have a very um, somewhat compromised uh, narrator, um, and again a narrator who is very much in whose narration is very uncanny. Just to pick up on a word that uh, that you used, um, Amelia, and that uh, that uncanniness of the of the narration is something that seems to be continued right throughout Ishiguro's um, career, and even that, that sort of something that qualifies you for human status, obviously a pale view of Hills is not interested in the post-human in the same way or with the same set of terminology that we get at these much more recent points in Ishiguro's career. Mm-hmm. but. Um, there is still a focus on what's a very racialized uh, essentialism that kind of equates to human status. Um, certainly, in terms of the rights that one can access um, through it, um, that comes up already in the um, appeal view of hills and its um, sort of look back towards mid twentieth century um, fascisms as well. So lots of lots of echoes to Esquiveros earlier career there. Uh, I just wondered, as as I mentioned. Um, of course, the immediately pre- pre- um, preceding Ishiguro novel um, is A Buried Giant*, which was notoriously something of a, an apparent, at least, um, genre departure for Ishiguro. Um I don't know whether either of you have any thoughts on echoes of that novel that are coming through here in *In Kara and the Sun* at all, or, or if not echoes, then how you would read the the difference between them.
2: Well, for me, anyway, the <sighs> just. From the reading experience, um, Ber- the berry giant is, I think, in terms of you're thinking about the percentage of the novel, mostly in the third person. Um, Dom will correct me if I'm wrong. I, I feel like Dom has a better memory than I have in general of most things. Um oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> but I think it, it, it's mostly third person, which um is a bit of a departure from Ishiguro and so he's left the the comfort of a first-person narrator behind, and the first person only comes in from, um, I think, Gawain when when he has his reveries in, in between, so almost like a, episodes that are a bit of an aside to the main story, and moments of reflection. Everything else is told in the third person from an unknown narrator, loads of people trying to guess who it is, but but in general, the protagonists are not the, you know, if you see Axel and Beatrice as the protagonists, they're not the narrators. I think that distancing effect was something he probably felt he needed it because he wanted to write about national collective memory, uh, links to, you know, almost like an allegory of, uh, of of 20th century atrocities and so on. And in order to write that, with a more objective frame, a framing, he felt that he needed maybe to go into the third person to do that. So I feel probably, if anything, the Barry Jane probably has the greatest distance from Clara and the Sun compared to all his earlier novels. Saying that, there are other things that I think are similar in the sense that he is getting better and better, I think, with each novel. But people like to seem to be putting Never Let Me Go, Clara and the Sun, and Barry Giant in between them as uh, a trilogy. I think they used to call one of his earliest, you know, set of novels another trilogy. So you group the unconsoled with with all that, with When We are Orphans and so on. But I think with this, there's almost like some kind of sci-fi weird fiction trilogy that Ishiguro has kind of created. Um, that journalists or, or critics seem to want to you know put them in this category. And I guess if anything used to think of the very giant as him as part of his journey into using genre fiction, or at least in in academia, work. unfortunately it's quite pejoratively used, you know, the, the term genre fiction, but even though it's 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 becoming much more respected now. Um but but there's this almost this sense that he he wants to Use genre fiction as a vehicle now for themes, and he's no longer shy about doing it. Because I think when he started off with Never Let Me Go, I remember then all the interviews. No, 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 it's not science fiction. You know, I don't know what science fiction is. This is something I just want to do because I'm interested in in in, in having a narrator who does this. Um, but now he seems to openly say it is science fiction. So he's clearly changed his mind about how he felt about science fiction and how he feels about Never Let Me Go. Um, and he because mostly open about berry giant being fantasy and uh and now he's very open uh, you know about clarence and being labeled as science fiction he's like he's fine with it so i think he's just more comfortable with using genre for thematic purposes than he did before so i think that there is that link to the berry giant in the sense that he's becoming a, a, a more experimental as an experiment can be with using speculative uh, fantasy genres for specific themes and his own concerns for the future of, I guess, you know, humanity and and so on and technology. So I guess those are the immediate thoughts I have about similarities and differences with the Beric Giant. I don't know if that answers your question.
0: Yeah, I I think it does, absolutely. Um, And it's interesting to reflect on that confidence that Ishiguro is showing now and, uh, Perhaps it goes back even to the point in my intro about the fact that yeah, even since uh, Never Let Me Go came out, and of course he was already a very established author at, at that point, but he has had you know, several really quite major honours since then, so he is very much in the kind of nothing left to prove sort of uh, <laughs> now, I think. Um, so, so maybe there's confidence. But, I think you've got a point there, yeah. Yeah. Um, perhaps I just... Staying a little bit with the echoes of uh, Never Let Me Go, well, there are those very um, close echoes, as we've discussed. But at the same time, Never Let Me Go came out in 2005. We're now in 2021. And a great deal has changed about the world in between those two points, it seems uh, one could argue, um, you know, in all uh, kinds of ways. Obviously, we had um, the uh, financial crisis at the end of the uh, 2000s um we've um had uh, major migration crises around the world other kinds of conflicts um we've had greater awareness but also problems with dealing with the existential threat of climate change and now of course we have the covid 19 pandemic which um would have um overshadowed i guess uh, the final phases of Ishiguru's writing of this uh, novel so and i think all of these various um quite serious crises that humanity has experienced and is continuing to experience have impacted on some ways in the, the discourse around the status of, of the human, um, what it means to be human, what um, the post-human might mean, and also about how you know, access to that status is, is obviously uh, unequally and unevenly uh, distributed. So there's a relationship to, to class there as well. Um, so Amelia, perhaps I could uh, come back to you, do you have any any thoughts on those relationships between the kind of human status and class status and how that uh, perhaps reflects the, the world as it's um, developed in the past um, decade or so, as it's, it's coming through here in Clara and the Sun?
1: Just a small question. Just a small <laughs> one. <laughs> well, I mean, I absolutely see your point, Dom, uh, about the, the these you know major upheavals and and changes but at the same time I feel like I I guess I see more parallels between those the perspectives in the that novel the never let me go and this current novel that then um, say more parallels than than um, conflict or or shift and it feels like very much like I said like a continuation that I've, and and especially since it does operate in a world, in both cases, the novels operate in these worlds that are, at least the view we get of these worlds, seem so um, kind of um, estranged from contemporary, the specifics of contemporary politics, shall we say, as opposed to the, the more general kind of overarching, um, ongoing, uh, turmoil and and conflict associated with um, migration, immigration, and and tyranny, <laughs> basically. Um, so, but I feel like there's not. I, I, I can't see myself because, and also as I say, I'm not an issue girl scholar in any sense, not remotely. So I can't see any kind of stark break or, or division between these that that you know, I don't know his work well enough. but I feel like there's an ongoing inquiry into, as I said, into this um, into status. Uh, I'm not, you know, I'm speaking here of status, human status or non-human status or kind of ontological status, right is what I'm talking about. Um, that that is maybe, um, more exaggerated at this point maybe there's a maybe there's a more of a sounding of an alarm in this in this text as opposed to it never let me go as as dire as a situation that novel is it feels um it feels like some of the concerns of the previous of not the previous novel but the, the previous text that we mentioned are um made more explicit brought to the fore in ways that were maybe more latent in, in Never Let Me Go. And I'm just thinking of, I mean, obviously there's so much to do with um, um, the this the human status and what the privileges afforded the human and the way that obviously um, any being, any entity, any matter that is not part of that category, um, is when it comes down to it, fundamentally disposable, right? Um, and available for use and then for disposal. And I think it feels like as much a comment on capitalism as it does on any particular kind of um, put it political regime or political um, uh, um, occurrence. But I feel like in in this case, in that in that novel, you have this, these literal copies, I mean these, these entities that are copies and so then are then as a result um, um, can be treated are some are fundamentally illegitimate in some way, right They are don't have that human status that allows them to um, be basically valuable, right Valuable in terms of um, their uh, value. A kind of intrinsic value, shall we say? They have a utilitarian value, um, whereas. And then in this case, I feel like that's ongoing, um, but and in both cases, you have a narrator who seems blithely um, unaware, right, of the larger repercussions of this kind of this uh, these kind of hierarchy and, and and accepting this naive acceptance that I think so many people. Um, find um, if not confusing, uh, even confounding. Having taught Never Let Me Go a number of times, students are, express such frustration at the <laughs> complete um, acquiescence, right? That that the characters um, seem to s- seem to um, undergo. So, I mean, I know I'm actually moving really away from your question, partly because I think I, I don't have a strong sense of how this novel. Um, speaks to specific kind of um, shifts as opposed to more as I see it more as a response to a larger historical and sociopolitical narrative around um, the, let's say, increasing but always there um, um, inscription of value and disposability and the way that populations are, are deemed, you know, expendable. And that feels like it's just, it's this ongoing attention to that and that we see happening constantly, COVID, like everything, just like this further accentuating and exaggeration of these inequalities, which um, I, th- I think Eugene and I were speaking about earlier, the way that he uses tech, tech um, biotech as well, to basically further that further those technological innovations just further accentuate and illuminate existing inequalities, right? That they are that they are um, become a kind of lens for viewing our existing um, social and political structures. I'm not sure if that fully answers. That's my wide-ranging um, <laughs> meandering um, response, but
0: yeah. I mean, I think that's of really helpful summary of Ishiguro's um, cumulative project, really, it's a project that does develop with every novel. So I I completely agree with your your mapping of that um, project and the fact that it it is always looking towards a larger um, canvas than just the, you know, than any kind of direct parallels with um, particular recent uh, developments in the, uh, political or social world, or or indeed even uh, world of technology. Um, I, I I do think I think there are there are other arguments that one can make about those parallels, that, mm-hmm. as well, that there are some more, you know, specific engagements with particular um, pieces of history in in the novels. But uh, and perhaps we can come back to some of those later. But I think overall, it's absolutely true that. Um, there is that um,
1: one thing I would say is like I guess I get a sense of. The, like I mentioned, the, um, the, there is that amplification that I mentioned. The fact that, it, that the novel uses the word fascism, I feel like mm-hmm. is quite notable in a way that, that, like, the, even the inclusion of that term seems very, it, it really, really struck me. It struck me mm-hmm. as, as an indictment in a way that I feel like he, his, um, the rest of the novel tends to shy away from like it, it actually is this moment of exposure because i feel like there there is a way that that we are kind of seduced into kind of this this kind of ethical ambiguity and and whereas when we're reminded of the specifics like you know of, of fascism there and that someone i mean having that come from a character i think draws attention maybe in a new way and maybe in a way that responds more directly to the moment. But I think, like I say, you, both you and Eugen know this 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 um, authorial landscape so much better than me. I'm super eager to hear your thoughts on it. I, I,
0: I really like your point about the word fascism there. And my thought, I was just wondering where, when you made that point, whether this is, in fact, the first time that the word fascism comes up in, in Ishiguro. I don't know. It, 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 there may be previous occasions. Um, one particular novel that would be interesting to look at uh to search for the word fascism of course would be the remains of the day because I'm not sure that the word is used Mm. Uh,
2: I can't remember I can't remember either you know the word appeasement turned up a lot yeah um Hitler and probably Nazis but you know I guess that's probably enough without having to say fascism
1: Mm. yeah
0: Mm-hmm. Whether or not it's the first time the word fascism is used in all of Ishiguro's, uh,
1: oh, I, I wouldn't claim it's that. It's very rare. <laughs>
0: certainly, certainly okay. it's very rare. So I, th- I think it's a really, um, I think it's a really interesting observation about that, that word. Just to continue with the um, the points around uh, human status and so on, and how Ishiguro sort of always uh, returns to that in in different, you know, just sometimes slightly adjusted contexts um, throughout his his novels. Again, I'll just go back really quickly to his very first novel, The Pale View of Hills, which I apologise for doing again. It's it's sort of my personal favourite of Ishiguro's novels, so I <laughs> tend to go back to it a lot. But, the, but that issue of human status and the disposability, which you were discussing, uh, Amelia, of whatever is deemed to be non-human or kind of um, at least approximate to the non-human... Um, it comes up in a really subtle way, even from that very first uh, novel, where there's, an, there's a sort of parallel of imagery that's drawn between the drowning of a child and the drowning of some kittens. Mm-hmm. And the drowning of the kittens is justified in the the moment by the fact that the kittens are non-human. They're just kind of you know little animals, just the same as same as rats. So you know, if we want to dispose of them, we can. And the way that that comes about in the novel is clearly in parallel to this instant where the mother, and it's the mother who wants to drown the kittens as well, and elsewhere a mother is is um, drowning her child. <laughs> so I think Ishiguro has been concerned with this right from the start, and he does keep coming back to it, obviously, and takes on more, more baggage and new new angles as, as things develop. Just on that point, um, I wonder whether we could just note specifically that of course, um, Chlora in the Sun isn't only concerned with those who are deemed to be of uh, lesser or sort of subhuman status and therefore are disposable. It also has a higher class of humans as well who have been um, you know, um, elevated, uh, lifted um, through gene editing. And I wonder um, whether we could say a bit more about that, about how... Um, gene editing technology turns up uh, in the novel and the way that it's treated and what that means for some of the, the themes that we've touched on already.
2: Uh, uh, Eugene, would you like to speak to that one? I'll try. Uh, I'm not an expert on, on gene editing, but I mean, just from anecdotally, just from reading, listening to interviews with Ishiguro, um, a lot of the advance that came from the technology invo- uh, surrounding CRISPR and uh and its potential uh use in, in all kinds of areas um, seems to trigger something within Ishiguro and i like going back to what you said Amelia i i really like what you said about s- status um, as well as this ongoing project of Ishiguro's is about the status of humans in in different walks of life, I suppose, or even non-human entities. Because I think you, you've hit some kind of nail on the head. I think it is an ongoing concern, kind of starting with *The pale view of hills, whether it's kittens or humans, or, 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 or even you know different ethnicities. He is, I think, very interested in this. And with, with gene editing, it seems to be his concern is about you know, what happens if you then almost Amp up the the global um, inequalities that we already have with regards to you know where you're from, the color of your skin, and you know uh, some countries that are just inherently you know wealthy or, or or have wealth because of other countries being marginalized. What if that gets even worse with people who then are able to make the most of gene editing or not? Um, and this only subtly hinted at in the novel, but in doing so, you then have e- even a greater disparity, or even more levels of class, if you like, more, more levels of social class, and, um, you, you you know, if there is, then, almost, like, um, technocratic, um, I don't know, aristocracy or something, where, you know, they are the super beings who, who hold the power, who have the enhanced intelligence or, or bodies and so on, and they can live, I don't know, forever or... Um, you know, what, what happens then to those who, who are not part of it. I, and I noticed that in the novel, I think Vance, the character, mentions something about age, which I was interested in with, because the, the acronym was never really mentioned as a kind of a programme of gene editing, but I guess G and E stand for gene editing. I don't know what A stands for, maybe advanced gene editing, but certainly there's a, a, a kind of a, a national programme to lift, as you say, certain children. So lift them, not just in terms of their bodies and their minds, but also, I guess, in terms of status and class, what happens to everyone else. So this is almost like um, a much more advanced version of a lot of the concerns Ishiguro had, except the focus is not maybe so much on ethnicity. Although Amelia very rightly pointed out the word fascism just kind of is like a massive red light that just explodes from the text, you know, Ishiguro is rarely so explicit politically, and yet somehow you have fascism. So you start to wonder is this militia, you know, predominantly right wing, white, middle aged male characters? Or, you know, you start to have all these images in your head. So that's also speaking at a very human level to kind of what's going on politically, what's been happening in the US. And obviously, there seems to be an understanding that the novel's set in the US. So you can't run away from those things as well. So I think. That that sense of dialogue about about class and about status is definitely ongoing with Ishiguro, um, and certainly you know who should live, who should die, and you know I was very struck by the fact that Clara ends up in a yard. You know she has provided four years of brilliant service to to um, I forgot the name of the main character. Was it Sophie? Josie. Josie that's it, I and even ended with an irony, e. so you know Josie benefits so much from that friendship and and you can even see from the body language they're familiar with each other, but after four years or 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 whatever, that's it um and then that disposable nature, and I guess you should have we should have guessed that from the whole shop window you know scene at the start that they are just disposable in fact, reading the novel i was, I was worried about scenes of robots just getting beaten up mm. i st- I still have. Traumatic memories of watching the Animatrix for the first time—you um, know, after the first Matrix film, just robots kind of getting destroyed by humans because they they just did not like these artificial beings. So you know um, that didn't really happen, but you get a sense that you are just a tool to help humans, and then you are. In, on the scrap heap, I think Ishiguro is also saying something about if we then want to imbue these these beings, these creatures, and Ishiguro calls them in, in interviews, with that kind of respect and and sense of decency. The word decency is something Ishiguro likes to say a lot um, in his writing and in interviews. You know, it almost harks back to an, an earlier period of how you value people for certain in certain ways. If you want to give that sense of decency to an artificial friend, but then you don't think anything about it when you then put them on a scrap heap, you know, uh, a few years later, what does that say about us as humans? If we can be figured out with algorithms and with, with data, are we then equally disposable perhaps? Or if you're not, if you weren't gene edited, would you also then be easily... Disposable um, is your life worth less? So I think a lot of these really important questions are kind of amplified in this novel in a typical understated kind of fashion. Um, yeah,
0: Amelia, did you want to pick up on any of those?
1: Oh, there's so much there. I think I, um, I think your original question had to do with the the lifted the ge- the lifteds versus the unlifteds in the bio tech, right, bioengineering. And yeah. then, I mean, it, it gets to all those comments that Eugene had and the questions around that he, he raised. So I feel like there's a lot of ways to go. With it. I mean, one thing that occurred to me is um, the degree to which the, the biotech, this genetic engineering is a reminder of the already muddied um, distinctions between the human and the non-human, like the the tech and the human, right? That the fact that the human characters have already been techno technoized, right? They have been edited, potentially, in fact, the most so-called successful, that's the term that they use, um, humans are technologically modified, right? So I think there's just, I feel like um, again and again, the novel, as very um, deceptively um, nudges or sometimes even shoves the reader towards a kind of acknowledgement of the arbitrariness of the categories that are still so powerfully entrenched, right? And these hierarchies, et cetera. So exposing the arbitrariness of them and the, the, um, the, not just not just the arbitrariness, but the randomness and and um, the the just the sheer luck of being on one side or the other, um, but at the same time the incredible um, rigidity of the boundaries and the impossibility of so so it's that again that double that double whammy of, of knowing that they are there's nothing intrinsic or or natural or um, you know, foundational about them, and yet they are completely immune to mm. assault, even though they are completely imaginary, right? So I feel like there's that central tension that that can be so infuriating, much as it was for a lot of readers of have never let me go, that I, you know, they're my students that you're well aware of how things could be different and how Silly it all is. and yet it it I mean, that's I guess uh, any hierarchy is is that way. and and I think I think and your comments about the yard, I mean, really really draw attention to that. but the the thing that struck me reading it was the this constant reminder that I had as a as a human reader, um of my own, constant reminder of my own humanness and the own, the, the limitations of my human perspective so that I felt like it was constantly reminding me of my, in, my inescapable anthropocentrism, right? That I really had no strong sense of what Clara, uh, um, what it means to be a Clara, you know, what it means to be an AF, I should say, or and in particular Clara and what those preferences and what meaning she um she attaches so the the as much as you know I can read it and I think are encouraged to read it as this you know a somewhat tragic if not tragic melancholy melancholic narrative of of disposal I feel like that's coming at it from this distinctly anthropocentric view right of what it means to be valuable and ethically significant etc but certainly i feel like that's what the novel was challenging me constantly to kind of reevaluate how i come to these these assumptions that I go into the novel having, and the way that they are supported and at this or and undermined often at the same time by many of the not only the events of the novel but the narration, the narrator, the narrative style. So, I feel like um, many. Uh, I mean, it's a novel full of questions, actual questions, not just raises questions. But there are you know, characters are constantly asking questions of Clara, and and I found myself often wondering you know the degree of irony with which those questions are posed and, or sincerity and and to what degree do, uh, this is a question I had for both of you, like to what degree do we read this or do you read it as a distinctly post-humanist novel or a humanist novel kind of in post-humanist clothing or or maybe both at the same time? And um, you know, to what degree do we take seriously, you know, um, Mr. Paul, the father's questions about the human heart that have been, I I was just looking at my copy, like, are obviously quite prominent, um, you know, is used for promotional, um, his question about the human heart, right, this, this incredible, you know, this um, falling back on these um, tropes around human specialness as being intrinsic and based in, you know, this simultaneous poetic and material understanding of the human and the heart as being crucial to that. Or and to what degree is that held up as a kind of ironic continuation of the anthropocentric perspective that got us into this situation in the first place of, you know, of these rigid hierarchies and disposability, et cetera. So, I mean, I'm just doing the same thing and just asking questions, but I mean, this is, I find it a very, um, I guess, productively generatively slippery novel and I feel like you can have it both ways I know the way I want to have it (laughs) but uh, I'm curious to know um you know how the two of you read it as being you know to what degree did you read it as as really providing or or promoting this a kind of critique of of, um, you know, a kind of humanist reading of the unique human with, and the human heart and how much that romanticist, romantic view of the human was upheld. <laughs>
2: I mean, Dominic, do you want to go?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Pretty unfair, I thought that I'm not the one, leaving. I'm not the chair here. <laughs> Pretty unfair yeah. for you.
0: Well, one, one thing I'd say, and it's not um, by any means a full answer to uh, the question, of course, but is just that that final disposal um, of Clara, which it reads as quite um, cruel from a human perspective, but I think, as as Eugen was mentioning earlier, is is not, you know, a negative experience for for her at the time. Um, I mean, this that sort of disposability is tied to acceptance of death because it is um, it is dying is what Clara is doing, um, and just thinking about that back in terms of Never Let Me Go. Uh, as well of course the all the exploitation of the clones in that novel is driven by the fact that um uh, the, the normals the regular humans um don't want to die
1: mm-hmm.
0: and yet what is the um what is actually the value of the life that they are continuing where it's just this sort of very denuded um form of um of living achieved through exploitation um so I I think there is there's something about um a critique of a human culture that is uncomfortable with accepting death and loss there and I think that is very much the target of Ishiguro's critique and using either clones or AFs who don't approach their death and their own disposability in the same way is of course a, a way for him to go into that critique so I think that's that's part of what I've seen down
1: there that's such a great point Dom um because I think I think absolutely I mean and and right Chrissy said you know puts her foot down right like you're not going to open her up she needs to be allowed her slow fade again these euphemisms you know that are so so just um so perfectly provocative right um your slow fade your lifted but um but I think that's a really nice connection as well. The the kind of because that's not one I necessarily have thought of, but that, that anxiety around death is such a, a great connection too to um thinking about a transhumanist critique, which I think probably we could we could all agree that that it's it's not there's not much to doubt that um that Ishiguros or these texts anyway are pretty skeptical about transhumanism, right? <laughs> that the fantasy of of uploading one's consciousness or continued life or freezing yourself, whatever you're gonna to do to maintain health, uh life and assumedly health indefinitely, right? And that one does that at any cost, and that, and that, you know, if it means shedding your body, if it means freezing it, if it means doing whatever, it's you know, longer life is always desirable, regardless also of the quality of that life. But um, I think that's a really nice point because I think too, it, like I said, it like really forces the reader to consider the assumptions that lead us to view certain endings or certain um, um, situations as, as you say, as an affront to decency. And what do we mean by? I think using that term, Eugen, that you said is so favored by him. That you know, what do we see as decent? And then the larger question is, who is we <laughs> really? Right? Like who who is we? Who are we to decide? You know um, what is a decent and um, life and a decent way to conclude a life um, um, for a human or otherwise? I feel like I think there's just a lot. If if nothing else, the novels remind me of my own fallibility as a like of human fallibility, including my own as a reader, right? And the degree to which I don't know, you know, the degree to which I don't know the um, other human experience, let alone more than human experience.
2: I think that's probably why his his novels are so well received globally, I guess, because it makes us think about these things. Um, Dom, I feel like you, you kind of answered that question really well. I'm not really sure <laughs> how to add to that. That was absolutely brilliant. Um, Very kind of you. Uh, but, you know, I, I like, I was thinking of that term slow fade i think that's that's always used wasn't it in the novel i really that really moved me you know mm-hmm. that Clara should be allowed her slow fade and and i i suppose for her it's something that she'd prefer to be you know on her own to order her memory she would like that slow fade rather than you know to be used as some kind of experiment um for some other movements which is interesting which is interesting comment in itself about you know the legitimacy of the artificial friends and technology and so on. She had an opportunity to be part of a political movement, I suppose, right at the very end. But, you know, uh, she she would rather just be on her own to order her memories, which, again, is very human. And I was thinking, I'm not sure how to answer your question, Amelia, which I think is a really good one. Um, but the whole thing about post-humanist or even humanist, I was reminded as you asked that question about something that Ishiguro said when he was doing publicity for the Buried Giants. I don't know if you knew this, but you know the um, science fiction writer Ursula Le Guin had a bit of an online spat with Ishiguro, and it's really not in Ishiguro's personality, I think, to have online spats with anyone. He is not on social media, but, you know, in one of her blogs, she decided to do a massively scathing review of the Buried Giant. Partly because it seems like she she saw something he said about I'm worried my readership would not want to read my books because they would see it as fantasy and she completely saw that as an insult to the genre that she's writing in. Mm-hmm. Uh, this online this this sparked a bit of a debate, you know, uh, and Ishiguro, you know, almost actually did a book tour with I think or, or did a, a speaking tour with Neil Gaiman, who turned out to be a supporter of. Ishiguro is talking about genre and genre boundaries and why there should even be genre boundaries and so on mm. um, but during the time of publicity I remember he said as mm. part of this controversy and his answer to it is look if people are asking me because I think there are pixies and fairies in, in, in the novel he said you know if, 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 he, if, if people ask me I am on the side of the ogres the dragons, the pixies the fairies i.e. I have no problem with genre. I fully respect the people who write genre, uh, genre fiction, and I'm not an expert on all these kinds of mythical characters, but I fully respect them, these characters. So, and that for me was a bit of a hint that he is he has no problem with magical characters, speculative characters, and so he does not see them in, pe- in a pejorative sense. And I realize he treats them the way he does his other characters. Um, and in various things he has said about his writing, and even in recent interviews for *Clara and the Sun*, he has actually said that he interviews his his protagonists and his narrators, um, at, uh, and and he and he says, you know, it is not, you know, he whether he came up with Kathy or with Clara, you know, or decision to go with a clone or a, a, a robot um, it's not because he specifically you know made that conscious decision I mean obviously we can dispute that but he does say he interviews different potential narrators and with an Floating of Floating world if you'd be interested in this Dominic he said in in a recent one of the kind of many talks for Clarence and he said he tried a completely different character. Um, in our floating world, but it failed within the first few moments of writing, and he he realized you're not going you're not working out as a as as a narrator uh, protagonist. I'm ditching you, and I'm going with someone else. He eventually, he came up with Ono, which worked much better. um So he does he does say he interviews fictional narrators, and you know Clara was just the perfect vehicle for the story he wanted to tell. So. I think that also says a lot about the way he views um, life in, in some ways, even if, if it's fictional life. So I think perhaps more post-human than humanist. I, I think he was very, again, from what he said before, he's very you know, sceptical about the way uh, corporations have uh, have the money to make all the big decisions maybe unchecked about AI, about gene editing, which he, you know, he's not against technology and he's excited about the future, but he's also worried that we're not having the conversations about some of the problems and dangerous inequalities that they are generating. And I think in many ways he is with the Pixies, the fairies, he is with the artificial friends and robots. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe he doesn't see that much of a difference after all between them and us, if you like, for them. Maybe he just sees life and decency, I don't know. But I think there's certainly that consistency in his writing where he 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 views them with, he writes these characters with compassion, whether they are human or they're not. And I think that in itself is quite interesting. So which is why I think maybe, Amelia, to answer your question, maybe more post-human mm-hmm. than humanist, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Just my two pence, I guess. We're actually almost
0: out of time for today's episode, I'm afraid. It's been an absolutely fascinating discussion so far. Maybe just as a final closing question, just for short answers, if if I may, Um, I alluded in my intro to um, how sort of increasingly secured Ishiguro's um, status within contemporary uh, fiction has has become, do we think that this uh, novel, Clara and the Sun, is going to continue to secure that status? And if so, would either of you like to offer any final thoughts on why?
1: Well, maybe I'll say something, because I think Eugene deserves the final thought on this, because I can't, I can't, like I say, I, I keep saying the caveat, like I'm not an issue So, I mean, if I have anything to do with it, absolutely. <laughs> because I think for, for my purposes, for my selfish, you know, scholarly um, interests, I mean, it's absolutely spot on. I mean, I think it's mm-hmm. incredibly um I mean, I, I have no, I have no desire in ranking the novel or judging it in terms of its, in terms of its literary um, um, quality, because that's just, you know, that's such an impossible task, right? But I think in terms of the this ongoing investigation into um, what it means to be a human but and also what it means to be a person in a related way and and I guess even more fundamentally what it means to have ethical significance and who gets to decide what counts who counts what counts um you know what matters and and it's I think that's the kind of story that I find the most um the most pressing right now, I guess, maybe at all times, but it feels like more so now than ever. And so this kind of work, I think, does that in such a brilliant way. I mean, the part of my I certainly it was a leading question about about the human versus the humanist posthumanist. But I do think there's something that's going on here with questioning this, you know, this poetic, romantic idea of the special, unique human being that really furthers a kind of posthumanist agenda, of decentering the human, thinking about other modes of being and knowing, um, b- being in the world, knowing the world and its inhabitants, that I find really inspiring as much as they're often come to not the greatest ends, but inspiring for thinking further about thinking beyond a kind of really narrow anthropocentric idea of what it might mean to be, to exist. And any kind of text that Starts a gesture towards that I find so exciting. I can can't imagine why it wouldn't be an important, significant, meaningful work <laughs> that would continue his his reputation.
2: Eugene, do you want to give any final thoughts on that? I think Amelia should have gone last. I <laughs> think that that was absolutely amazing. Um, I think I completely agree with everything you said, uh, and I think those are exactly the reasons why it's important. It's that ongoing conversation that. About us and our status, um, I think, and the status of life, um, which I think is really something he's been, you know, really concerned about. I I take your point, Amelia, about you know that that quote at, at the back of the book. You know, you, it's not who you think it'll come from, <laughs> um, but he is interested in things like human relationships and what it means to remember or love someone. Um, and this very much, you know, is it is probably the key theme in in this novel. I've got a very kind of like personal connection with the buried giant, so I guess I'm unusual in that being one of my favorite all-time Ishkira novels. Um, But uh, I think this, in many ways, just at 300 pages, um, is very much, I guess, uh, a, a very compact, lucid, um, and very clear, I suppose, study and, and conceptualization of those ideas that Amelia just mentioned, said so well, I'm not even going to try to replicate what she said. But, you know, uh, I think for those reasons, I think he has brought everything about the human condition that he's concerned with, as well as concerns about ethics and technology, and almost as a passing of warn- warning shots to all the corporations uh, uh, um, uh Uh, as scientists who are continuing to develop technologies to think about everything from risks to, you know, who we are as human beings, um, I think he's posing all these questions and throwing them out there as part of his kind of engagement with what's happening around the world and his own kind of shock and and worries about the the way things have turned politically, globally and medically you know in the last year or so um so i think yes it it, it will for many reasons um and i think the most important reasons are the ones that you know amelia and, and you don't have kind of mentioned today really thanks Jim. well we shall wrap it up there for uh, clara and the sun um,
0: but you know i think now that we've talked it over so thoroughly i'm very excited for my second reading of the novel now can't wait for that i'm sure that you're both excited uh, for that too and obviously because this is such a recent novel the um analysis of it um will continue for some time uh, to come and it's going to be really fascinating i think to see what uh, what work does come out um responding uh, further to clara and the sun and hopefully um for anyone uh, listening today we've offered a few a few starting points there in this uh, this discussion as well so thank you both um very much indeed Uh, Eugene and Amelia,
2: and I hope that everyone has enjoyed this discussion.